tell you what you're listening to. Welcome to Father Simon Says on Relevant Radio with Father Richard Simon. I'm here to answer your questions. Have a question? Give us a call. 1-888-914-9149. As any question you may have about the Lord, the faith, and the church, that's 1-888-914-9149. This is, in fact, a radio show called Father Simon Says on Relevant Radio. Well, hello. More fun with Bible. Today's passage in the first reading is actually kind of important to me in my in my genesis as a believer. So I'll explain that after we pray. In the, <laughs> the voice Mary just said, no pun intended. No, this is the book of Samuel, not Genesis. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Come, Holy Spirit, fill the hearts of your faithful and kindle in them the fire of your love. Send forth your spirit, they shall be created, and you shall renew the face of the earth. Lord, you taught the hearts of the nations by the light of the Holy Spirit. Grant us by that same spirit to have right judgment in all things, and evermore to rejoice in his comfort through Christ our Lord. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Amen. St. Michael the Archangel, defend us in battle. Be our protection against the wickedness and snares of the devil. May God rebuke him, we humbly pray. And do thou, O Prince of the Heavenly Host, by the power of God, cast into hell Satan and all the evil spirits who prowl about the world, seeking the ruin of souls. Amen. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Well, all right, let's open the big book on the coffee table. Now, right away, Right away, if you go to the USCCB, United States Conference of Catholic Bishops website, and click on Daily Readings, the reading will come up, and you will see in bold, large, bluish uh, type, Wednesday of the second week in Ordinary Time, then you'll see Lectionary 313. That means that's the section in the lectionary where you'll find it. And, you know, it's reading 313, not page 313, but reading 313. And then beneath that, you, well, if you have the voice man said you need a degree to figure this out. But it really is simple once you get it down. If I can do it, believe me, it's simple. Uh, it really is. Uh, so then you get reading one and a little line under it and over to the right you see 1SM 17 colon 32 dash 33 comma 37 comma 40 dash 51. In other words, 1st Samuel chapter 17 verses 32 to 33 verse 37 verse 40 to 51. Now all of those commas in there mean stuff has been left out and the reason I'm always telling you this is it's left out is because we want to expose ourselves in the church to as much scripture as we can. And so you're getting the Reader's Digest version of it. It is allowed, in fact, encouraged to go back and read the whole thing. And I am really encouraging you to read the entire story of Samuel and Saul and David. It will amaze you <laughs> and and um, actually kind of perplex you because... They are not us. They are people who lived 3,000 years ago. Think about that. That, that. This is such an important thing to us, and it's 3,000 years old. That has staying power. Now, the reason, one of the reasons that this is um, 
is a passage that I love dearly is because this talks about uh, uh, the the confrontation between David and Goliath. And when I was a little kid, I was raised as a free-range child. And Mother was always happy when we went to the IGA to let me go over to the library next door, an old Andrew Carnegie Library, a grand old creaky building that smelled of musty books. And uh, I think I was four. <laughs> she would let me just go into the library. That Back then, you'd do that. You'd let a four-year-old go somewhere without supervision. And uh, now, of course, it's you, a little, little Jimmy put on your... your uh, your helmet, your knee pads, and your your elbow protectors, and, and kiss daddy goodnight. You know, but back when I was a child, we were, as I said, free-range children. And I would, you know, mom wouldn't want to take me to the store because I went, buy me that, buy me that, buy me that. So she would let me go into the library and she could shop in peace and then she would come and fetch me and she knew where I was going to be because for some reason I was utterly fascinated by the picture in the children's bible uh, in the first room on the right in on the first floor of the library I was always fascinated by the picture of David and Goliath this giant Goliath was was oh it was fascinating and I would just go and I, I couldn't read I would just find find that page and look at that picture and so that that was my first foray to scripture. I was all of four years old. And, uh, well, it stuck because it's an amazing story. And more than amazing, it's a true story. Now, we're going to have a problem here with this. And I think it, it, um, um, Oh, it, it emphasizes the the truth, the veracity of the accounts that we've received from 3,000 years ago. Now, you all know about the Trojan War and uh, the Iliad and the Odyssey. We used to call them in school. We called them the idiot and the oddity. Um, that that uh, so many people said, nah, it's just mythology until a, a German fellow, Heinrich Schliemann, uh, decided he was going to find Troy. And so he went and started digging, and uh, darned if he didn't find Troy. Actually, he probably stole the uh, the work of an Englishman who had uh, found Troy uh, before him. But, but Schliemann popularized it, and he also found Mycenae uh, in Greece, which was part of the, the story of the Trojan War. But up until that point, it had all just been considered mythology, because you see, Homer wrote in the year 800, probably, if he wrote. He may have just composed the poems because people could memorize long things. Uh, in fact, is there still Irish bards alive who can mem and Turkish bards who can memorize long poems? But the art is dying out. Well, the composition of the Iliad and the Odyssey were attributed to Homer, but he wrote 400 years after the fact when Troy was nothing but a ruin. So, if this war happened. How could Homer have known it? Well, when they dug up Troy and they found the level of the of the dig, you know, the the, the cities in the Middle East have layers like onions. Um, it was as Homer described it, pretty much. When you describe the walls, it, it's it's amazing how how very um, precise Homer was. Because these things are passed down faithfully. We don't do that anymore. We have to write it down, or we forget it, or we have to put it in our our handheld device or we forget it and then we forget it but before the era of paper and printing people relied on memories and it was a very very reliable source so what i'm trying to say by this is 
These stories are true. And the problem in this section of the scripture, to me, uh, emphasizes the truth of the scriptures here. Because there are two apparently contradictory stories of how David and Saul met. Uh, and one of the one of the if you look at the the the, the whole book, I think it's in chapter sixteen, it's perplexing to us. An evil spirit from the Lord came upon Saul. An evil spirit from the Lord. Yeah, an evil spirit from the Lord. Read the book of Job. There's an evil spirit from the Lord. Why would God allow an evil spirit to to attack anyone? Well, I remember an old Pentecostal preacher said the reason God didn't lock the devil in hell was because you need him. And what he meant by that was in the economy of salvation, even temptation uh, is is useful to the Lord's plan. It isn't God's plan A. St. James says if one is tempted, do not let him say he's tempted by the Lord. Uh, but the Lord allows the devil a bit of leeway because, you see... I can convince myself I'm very, very spiritual, and I'm wonderful, and I'm holy, and I'm religious, and I'm on the same side as God. Me and God, we got this thing going. And then a temptation comes along, not to show God what's in my heart. God knows what's in my heart. And usually the people with whom I live and whom I know know what's in my heart. I'm the only one who doesn't know what's in my heart. And you see, the purpose of temptation is to manifest to us who we in fact are so that we might repent. That's that's the devil's job in the economy of salvation. God can force even the devil to serve his, his, his plan. But t- temptation exists to show us who we are. And Saul thought he was all that. And for some reason, um, my computer has just turned sideways. I... I I rebuke you, Satan. No, the, the picture has turned sideways, and I have no idea how to undo that. Oh, dear. This is. See, you talk about scratch, and he shows up. Okay, I don't know what to do. <laughs> oh, dear. Well, <laughs> this, is, this is almost, if it weren't very frustrating, it would be humorous. Well, I will keep talking if I can... Uh, good grief. This is really strange. All right. Um, pay no attention to that man behind the curtain. Okay. Okay. We're just going to shut it down and we'll go to another computer and see if that works. I've got so many of them. Okay. Shut down anyway. I can't even move my mouse in a consistent way. Oh, dear. Well, oh, good grief. This is This is utterly bizarre. No, this is even weirder. I, I've never seen my computer do this. Where was I? Yes, yeah, so so talking uh, about the devil and uh, computers. I'm talking about <laughs> the devil and computers. Odd how that works. Well, moving along here, uh, let me pull up the daily Bible reading on another computer. All right, we got it here, and um, lo and behold, um, uh, um. There are two in in this section of scripture. There are two completely different accounts of how David and Saul meet. That's what I was talking about. David is a player of the harp, and he uh, um, uh, Saul has these these strange episodes 
in which he, uh, um, well, he goes crazy. Sounds like he's, uh, what's the word I'm talking about? Uh, manic, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, what's the, bipolar. That's what it sounds like. And they find a harpist who can play to, to soothe David, to make David feel a little better about things. Or rather, Saul. And uh, um, uh, it doesn't work. Uh, David and Saul are... are uh, uh, um, let me if I turn the computer on its side. Okay. <laughs> this, is, this is the strangest adventure with a computer I've ever had. And, okay, well, okay, well, that seems to have done something. Okay, where was I? Um, the, the, my goodness. Okay, well, let's get back. I'm sorry, I really am. This is, this is not good radio. Um, all right, well, we'll just use this little computer. All right, the, um, <clears throat> uh, oh, yes, yeah. so, so you have this account that David is bringing uh, uh, food to his brothers on the battlefield and ten cheeses to their commanding officer. It's in the Bible. And uh, he says, um, uh, he, he, he is introduced to Saul because uh, he's saying, I can, I can kill that, that giant Goliath. Uh, and uh, he's introduced to Saul. Well, there's, he's already been introduced to Saul because he's been taken to play the harp for him when Saul is, is going bonkers. Uh, that's interesting because they're two different accounts. Well, they might be reconcilable somehow. My point, believe it or not, I'm actually going to get to a point. My point is this, that, um, both of those stories were told and the authors of the text, the human authors of the text, put both of them in and never tried to edit them. You follow? Never tried to edit them. Uh, this is significant to me. That we have never tried to make the scripture uh, work right. We've <laughs> contrasted with computers. Uh, the we've never we've never tried to get our story straight. What we have received, we have passed on. And I think that this is a very very important thing. Next point I want to make, if I can get to it, um, I want to go to the gospel. And then I want to segue into the acts I've been grinding. Maybe that's why the devil's not happy. We see Jesus entering a synagogue in the gospel of Martha, the third chapter, and he, uh, um, uh, he's going to um, uh, heal a man who uh, has a withered arm. And uh, um, there's a backstory to this, uh, that it was said that this man had been a stonemason and uh, he'd had a stroke, his arm was withered, and he had lost the ability to make a living for his family. Now, the rabbis say that you can heal the sick, or you can, you can bind up a wound to save a life on Sabbath, but you can't heal the sick. Healing's the work of the doctor. In other words, if someone is bleeding, you can wrap, wrap the thing up so it, he won't die, the wound up. But you can't put any medicine on it because that would be healing. It's that precise. Well, Jesus saw more deeply. He saw that this man had lost his life and livelihood, his dignity. And so he saved his life by healing him. 
you know, he looked in more deeply. But the, the, what I want to really zero in on is looking around at them with anger uh, um, and grieved at the hardness of their heart. Jesus said to the man, stretch out your hand, and he was restored. That, does, that sounds kind of odd because in the very first chapter of St. James, we read that human anger does not work the purposes of God. And what I really want to say, um, you know, in, the, in my current grinding of the axes, we are living in such angry times that if you don't agree with me, you're a bad person. And that's on both sides of the discussion. If you want it this way, you're a bad person. If you don't want it this way, you're a bad person. And our, our go-to response in these things is anger. And, well, Jesus got angry in today's reading. Yes, he's Jesus. The anger of man does not work the purposes of God. The anger of God does. God can be angry because everything he does is done in love. When I get angry, it's not for the sake of love. Some parents get angry for the sake of love, but usually when I get angry, it's not for the sake of love. You following me? Now, this, this anger that is divine is the prerogative of God. And when I get angry and think I have a righteous anger, there's a very strong chance I'm committing idolatry. Ah, yeah. Anger morphs into the sin of idolatry. Why does anger morph into the sin of idolatry? It morphs into the sin of idolatry because if I claim for myself that which belongs only to God, am I not worshiping myself? So if I think that I can accomplish something with my human anger, I'm saying I'm, I'm taking to myself the power of God. Now, there are moments of righteous anger. I don't know that I've ever had one. Uh, my anger is never very righteous. I, I, I hope yours is. But when you are angry, you darn well better examine yourself to make sure it's an anger that comes from God and not just from you. Because if it comes from you, you're committing a grievous sin, the sin of idolatry, by, by, by arrogating to yourself that which belongs to God alone. That's what I think. All right, we're going to go to a break, and I'm going to see if I can figure out what in the name of sweet heavenly glory is going on with my computer. All right. <laughs> Hi. We'll be back soon. Today, we'd like to thank Mark, who's listening in Minnesota, for donating his Pontiac. You can join thousands of other listeners in donating old vehicles by visiting relevantradio.com slash car today. know if I like it like that. That was creepy. I'm not kidding you. You know, there's a reason I, I pray the prayer to St. Michael at the beginning of this show. It's not against flesh and blood reward. My computer suddenly turned the picture on its side and erased all of the show prep I'd done. I'm not kidding. I actually don't tell anyone, but I actually do some show prep. But um, that's just amazing. Um, but but the the voice in my head, Nicholas II, he coached me through how, how the little buttons on the thing I had to press. But I, I want to continue with that just a little before we go to letters. That you know, anger is not one of the appropriate um, uh, tools of the believer. 
whether you are the the janitor, whether you are the pastor, whether you are, uh, no matter your role in the church, from highest to lowest, anger, unless it is prophetic, and that means directly inspired by the Holy Spirit, as in thus says the Lord, and even then you're risking it. I really believe that. Anger belongs to God. Jesus could get angry because he was God and man a divine person. I am not a divine person. And I do not have the right in myself to anger. While I'm being angry for God, you darn well better be sure, because as I said, if you're angry, and I'm saying this to, you know, I, I this is probably not the most popular thing I'm going to say, but if you're angry, this is sinful. And I, I don't care if you are angry as a pastor, if you're angry as a congregant, if you're angry as the choir director, no matter your role in the church, from highest to lowest, as the world sees it, it's wrong. It's a sin. Well, I can't help but get angry. Well, yes, you can. You take the deep breath and you say, Jesus, I trust in you. You speak the truth in love. You're bold. You don't. I'm not saying you got to give in to 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 things that are immoral. That's not what I'm saying. It's the motivating emotion of anger that is inappropriate for the Christian, and that is that is so hard to lay hold of. Because anger feels so good. You know, when I was in. Uh, Oh, I'm I'm really off the track now, but I'm having fun. We'll we'll get back on track in a minute. But when I was in a parish that was very progressive, <laughs> the uh, oh, a story from my hippie youth. I remember one of the things that kind of got me out of the leftist thing, and I really was involved in that stuff when I was in college. One of the things that got me out of it was that the peace committee broke down the middle during peace week over those who were violently nonviolent and those who were nonviolently nonviolent. I was on the side of the nonviolently nonviolent. I thought nonviolence had to be consistent. But the violently nonviolent said that violence against the violent is not violence. What? Well, years later, I was much, much more traditional in everything, especially my theology and my, my liturgical practice. Um, I was sent to a parish that was, it was the headquarters for nuns for a free choice, was a, a, a group of nuns who were pro-abortion. It was uh, all of these interesting fringe uh, groups had settled in this parish, and and uh, um, they sent me there. And uh, I was not allowed to say the main mass for three years. They had their own priest who didn't call God Father and had lay celebrants and women on the altar as concelebrants and all that. And my immediate superiors were very much um, in favor of that sort of thing. So I just, you know, uh, they say don't do anything when you're a pastor for the first year. Well, it took uh, three years. And then when they advertised a pro-abortion march uh, from the pulpit, I said, that's it. This is the hill I'm willing to die on. And so we began to negotiate. But they went into the, the inclusivist community, which was exclusively white, except for one person, about 90 very angry young people, most of them studying to be lawyers, I think. Um, they, uh, they went into full gear, and uh, uh, they, they, they would write these letters. And I, I was really, uh, 
the Holy Spirit was very good to me during this time because I, I, approached, I, I was able to approach it with a sense of humor. Well, they would write endless letters to the cardinal to have me removed, and he would dutifully, Cardinal Bernard would dutifully send me these letters, and I would print them up in um, a book uh, and, and put them in the front office so people could read the letters about what a terrible priest I was uh, um, while they were waiting to see Father. And the nuns from across the street would sneak over and steal the book, and I would just put out another one. I had so much fun with it, you know, that, that uh, the devil hates, C.S. Lewis talks about this in Screwdiddlers, the devil hates good, honest laughter. The devil loves anger. So I think that that, that was a real blessing to me, because I was, it was not an easy time, uh, but I was able to approach it with, with humor, and and um, I had the support of some very good and holy people. But uh, if I had reacted the way they wanted me to react, though I, you know, and I, I thought about that. Why? Why is that? Why do they so love, you know, the violently nonviolent? Why do they? Why is that such a rewarding thing? Anger feels really good. And if you can baptize anger, oh, it just feels good. You can get it out. You can yell and scream and say, I'm holy. Ha. Baptized anger is such a nice feeling, but it's demonic. <laughs> I'm looking at my computer to see if it's going to flip on the side again. It's demonic. Uh, You've got to stop being angry, no matter what your position is in the current dialogue about liturgy, about theology, about politics. Your being angry is, that's the devil's sense of humor. He finds that just hysterical. So the more you can, the more you can approach these things reasonably and even humorously. Uh, you mean you should be humorous about abortion? I'm not saying that. I, even I couldn't be humorous about abortion. Uh, but I can point out the inconsistencies in it. And I can feel genuine sorrow for those people who have been deluded by the devil to think that abortion is a good thing. Uh, pity and sorrow and, and, uh, and, and love are much better reactions to the horror of abortion than, than anger. But how can you not get angry? Well, Jesus, I trust in you. If you're getting angry, you're not trusting him. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. When you take it on yourself... Well, he says, I guess I don't have to worry about <laughs> taking revenge on my enemies. You'll do it for me. I'll leave it to God. God can do a much better job of 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 taking of of exercising justice. I don't know. I'm just oh, Saint Michael the Archangel, defend us in battle. All right, let's go to letters. Hello. Oh, there. Okay. Okay. Now this is an interesting one. This is from Stephen in um, uh, says, uh, about uh, January 6th. I, your explanation of the passage from 1 John about the love of God equally in keeping his commandments was, was helpful. Like the warning label on a bottle of bleach. Now, and then he wants to talk about very wonderfully. Uh, an idea occurred to me uh, related to a question. Why did God put the tree in the middle of the garden? Um, and with the forbidden fruit. Uh, in addition to your answer about human free will and God seeing a relationship with us, there's another answer to this. It seems this tree also serves as a mirror to show us we are not God. 
and that we've been created in the image of God with not only a tree, but with reason. The warning God gives to Adam and Eve not to eat the forbidden fruit is an act of love on God's part, showing us that there are limits and not license in the kingdom of God to exercising our individual wills. This fits in so nicely, Stephen, with what I just said. Thank you. That, that the tree was to show us we're not God. And the prohibition on anger, as I said, belongs... Uh, the anger belongs to God. He's allowed. God has this problem. He thinks he's God. He's allowed to be angry. In fact, is his anger is is another expression of his love, and my anger isn't. So when I when I eat of the fruit that I'm not supposed to be, uh, the devil said to Eve, "You will be like gods, knowing good and evil, and." Um, not knowing it so you can discern, but so that you can use it. Very, very interesting, Stephen. Thank you. Okay, now, let me see. All right. You know, I've, I, I, I've been looking for a verse in the one of the so-called Catholic books of the Bible. I think it's in Sirach that God did not make any any poisonous herb. You know, that it's all good when used appropriately. And people have been trying to help me find that phrase. And this is from Hugh. Uh, who says, I wasn't able to find the phrase you were looking for. Uh, however, remember Genesis one thirty one, and God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. That That covers it pretty much. That covers it. All right. Let's see here. Now that I've got one. Let me do one more letter, and then we'll, we'll take a break. Um, why does... Uh, this is Monica. Why does... Jesus used David as an example to prove that what he's doing is okay. David did a lot of bad things. It hardly seems plausible that it could be held up as an example to say, if David did it, then it must be okay for me to do it. Um, the, she's referring to uh, David ate the bread, which was uh, permitted only to the priests. And David did a lot of bad things. She's absolutely right. And David was a man after God's own heart because he could repent. Um, there's more that I, I hope I get an opportunity to share about Saul not being a man after God's own heart. He was heavily to cover up. Well, uh, um, this is, this is, if you read the story that, that Abiathar, who is a priest, uh, and eventually high priest says, he, he says, have you kept yourself ritually clean? And, um, yes, you can eat it. In other words, it wasn't just uh, a, um, a giving in to a breaking of the law. There were conditions in it. And so it's as much about Abiathar, the priest, as it is about David. But he doesn't say that it was a good thing. He asks a question, did not David do this? David, whom you so look up to as, 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 uh, as people from the tribe of Judah, uh, if, if David, who was a sinner, could do this, well, um, you need to, was allowed to do this even though he was sinful. Um, you need to look at it. So if you read the story in, in the Old Testament about David going into the shrine and uh, taking the, the bread of the presence, uh, the priest asked him, are you, in essence, are you in a state of grace? <laughs> Not 
not strictly speaking. So, all right. Well, we will go to. I think that's a very interesting question, though. Um, yeah, David. David did some terrible things. We are going to go to a break. We'll come back in just a moment with the word of the day and a few other things. Eight 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 nine one four nine one four nine. The lines are open. And we hope they stay that way. 888-914-9149. Boy, am I going to need a nap after this. The Relevant Radio Studio Line is sponsored by Catholic Order of Foresters. Information about employment opportunities and their flexible premium life insurance plans available at relevantradio.com slash forester. Every time I feel a spirit moving in my heart, I will pray. Every time I feel a spirit moving in my heart, Oh, boy, I remember that song from good old Pentecostal meetings. Great fun. And, you know, speaking of Pentecostal meetings, do not forget, uh, there's a meeting this Friday in Washington. Am I right on that, dear voice in my head? It's called the March for Life. Yes, I'm right. I've got the day right. And we are encouraging people who can't go to the March for Life to fast for life. Uh, you can sign up at uh, relevantradio.com. Uh, 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 slash, uh, is what, what's after the slash? I don't have it here. But just look for fa- hashtag fast. I don't know where I put it. Hashtag fast for life. Say that again. Slash Relevant radio, fast. This is live. Oh. slash fast. Good. I'll just let him say it because he does a good job of it. That's, you've got a good radio voice, dear voice in my head. Hmm. Let's, and then, and then just hashtag fast for life to find it. And, you know, I, I'm looking at this Ophelia from North Las Vegas. She's fasting and saying super duper rosary and numerous divine chaplets. Super duper rosary. And, <laughs> you, you know, your basic five decade, uh, you know, uh, at any rate. And th- this is really intriguing. There's somebody in the Philippines who at Alma from the Philippines uh, will be united with us in prayer to end abortion. And, uh, you know, uh, um, <laughs> this is a real penance. Linda, I plan to listen to Relevant Radio all day. When she gets to 1 o'clock, it'll be a penance, I bet. Okay, and I'll do the daily prayer line. So people are doing things, you know, and, and it's not against flesh and blood reward. So these are powerful weapons, and, uh, you know, great progress has been made. All right, let us now go to the word. Where are we? With the, the word of the day. I got... Uh, say that again? Phone who what? Don't doubt my instincts. <laughs> yes, and I think the phones, I think we have room for a few phone calls at 888-914-9149. I got a letter uh, from um, uh, Mary uh, in Minneapolis. I just finished reading Flannery O'Connor's novel, The Violent Barrier Away. This title comes from the scripture passage, Matthew eleven twelve. It was a difficult novel to understand. Can you perhaps explain what the verse from Matthew means? Well, it says, of course, that's one I had up, which is all gone, but it it was uh, uh, from the times of John the Baptist until now, Jesus says that the kingdom of God is suffering force and the force will bear it away. He's saying this to an audience of people who think they have the, the, the market on religion cornered. Uh, that, that, you know, 
the Sadducees were were a priestly class, and they controlled the temple, and they they just you know don't do this at home. We'll take care of religion. Just send in your money, and we'll be religious for you. And Jesus is saying that the kingdom of God, when we think of the kingdom of God as a place, well, the kingdom of God is being assaulted by force. That's not right. That's I I remember I I never I I always think the primary way you should interpret the word kingdom of God, possibly in Greek means royalness. God's royalty is being taken by the forceful. In other words, it's not something you're born into, it's something you're born again into. That that it doesn't mean we should be violent, but what Jesus is saying is the lower classes, the people who are not sophisticated and uh um religious by nature that these people the the tax collectors the prostitutes the the country people people who were not respected by the sadducees and even the pharisees they're they're taking the king they're taking god they're, they're getting god's royal nature uh because they want it not because it's their inheritance. You know, there are certain people, I was born Catholic. No, you weren't. You were baptized Catholic. I remember I was talking about that that bunch of people who made my life very interesting when I was at that very progressive parish. And uh, this, I remember this woman at a meeting said, you can't tell me what it means to be Catholic. I was born Catholic. And I looked at her, and she was, the whole grocery list of things she was for, which the Catholic Church doesn't do. I said, you weren't born Catholic. You were baptized Catholic. You know, I've heard it said that the Irish have been Catholic since long before Christ. Well, not no more. Uh, I think this is very important to understand. To understand God has no grandchildren. He has, you, you, the Bible talks about being sons and daughters of God. God has no grandchildren. You can't go to heaven because your grandma was holy or your mom was holy. They can pray for you and you can imitate their fine example and teaching. But you must seek the kingdom of God. You must seek God's royal nature in Christ. You must accept Christ as your Lord and Savior. And I would go so far as to acknowledge his bride whom he loves, the church. So uh, that's, I think, what this means is it, that that the, uh, uh, the vile and bear it away is about people who you don't think they're religious. They, they're not, you know, you know, they don't come from a hereditary caste of saints. They're the ones who are encountering and should encounter God's royal nature, his kingdom. All right, 888-914-9149. Oh, I hope so. Who have we got, dear voice in my head? Joel from Toma, from Wisconsin, not too far from here. What can I do for you, Joel? Hey, Father Simon. Thanks for taking my call. Great to talk to you. I love your show. Good to talk to um, you. I'm honored. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, likewise. Uh, just wanted to clarify, um, you mentioned earlier, if I remember right, that uh, you said something along the lines of, it's always a sin to be angry. And I wanted to know if you draw a distinction with that between feeling angry and um, acting out of anger. Because I, I would disagree about feeling angry, because I think it's a very human emotion. No, I, 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 think you're, I think you're right. I think feeling angry is the temptation, and acting out of anger, that's a, thank you, because that is a good distinction. Feeling angry, I would say, is the temptation. Acting out of anger, okay. or expressing that anger, you know, yelling at someone, um, 
Now, there are exceptions. I always say people should take what I say with a grain of salt, and I mean it. You know, I remember my mother would say, I love you, now I'm going to strangle you. She never did, but we could make mom angry, but because she loved us. She wasn't getting angry because we'd insulted her dignity or disobeyed her. She was. She only got angry when we did foolish things that, that were ultimately uh, self-destructive. Uh, and it was a very rare thing. So there are moments where anger is a, it can be righteous, but it is a very rare thing. But I think that's a good distinction to feel angry and to say, wait a minute, I'm going to calm down. And I always recommend when you notice the feeling of anger welling up in yourself, that's when you take the deep breath. <sighs> and as you let it out, you say, Jesus, I trust in you. It's like taking a sedative. Uh, but um, yeah, I, I really do think that to act out of anger, that's a better distinction. So thank you, Joel, for, for clarifying what I wanted to say. It's helpful. Yeah, so, I agree. Anything else? I, I agree with that. Anything else? Anything else I can do for you? If I, if I could ask one follow-up question, if you have sure. time. Um, completely different topic regarding Latin being the official language of the church. Is mm -hmm. that arbitrary? And can the church, if she decides, can she change her official language to something more beautiful, say Greek? I suppose so. Uh, I remember in, in the movie, the man for all seasons, uh, the Spanish ambassador, not the movie, but the play, uh, the Spanish ambassador comes in and hears Thomas More's daughter upstairs with her fiancé praying the, divine, the, the liturgy of the hours in Latin. He says, ah, Latin, that sacred language. And, and um, uh, Thomas More says, not sacred, just old. <laughs> and I think that that's true. Now, now uh, I don't think we can... We can historically abandoned Latin totally because because a great deal of the 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 the, the tradition is written in Latin and uh, but it, there's nothing particularly sacred about Latin in itself or uh, I would you know I majored in Greek and I taught it well I taught both Latin and Greek and I would say I, I would I would venture that Greek is more sacred than Latin in some ways because well that was the language of the time of Christ and the one the Holy Spirit chose to write the scriptures and you see the Catholic Church has a lot of official languages. We have uh, Old Church Slavonic, and we have liturgical Gaze in Africa, and we have so there. Every rite has its its official language. Uh, the the official language of the Latin rite is well, Latin because much of our literature is written in it. But I, I assume that that could change because it isn't. I don't think it's divinely revealed. So, and I'm very fond of Latin. I think everybody should take Latin because I used to call it, uh, with my students, I used to call Latin remedial thinking. Nobody ever speaks it, but mm -hmm. it gives you a good a good handle on grammar and a good handle on how to learn a language. So, uh, and you've learned like well, five uh, European languages, yeah. you know, after you learn Latin. I, I, I never took Spanish and I speak it every day of my life still. That's because it's, it's Latin badly spoken. I can do that. So, okay, mm -hmm. Joel, thanks for calling. Anything else I can do for you? No, that's all. Thanks for uh, giving me All right. God bless. God bless you. I'm honored that you listen. All right. Who do we have now, dear voice in my head? Myra from California. Are you with us, Myra? What can I do for you? Oh, hi, Father. How are you? Pretty good. Pretty good. Um, A little I cold. Not as warm as California, but go <laughs> on. <laughs> I had a question. Thank you for taking my call. Um so at the end of morning mass, um, uh, I once told everyone there that we needed to pray to God to help us not be late because I felt that it was disrespectful. 
And uh, I just wanted to ask, do you think I acted out of anger? I don't know. I wasn't there. Did you sound as sweet as you do on the phone? Uh, I tried to be as respectful <laughs> as I could. <laughs> well... Yeah, no, you know, I, I, I would have had to be there, and, and you were there, and you know if you act out of anger. Um, uh, that, you know, again, I always say take what I say with a grain of salt, um, but but I think that, that there's an old saying, make your words soft and tender because you may have to end up eating them, uh, that... that um, if you start off with, well, you know, I love I love you all, but we really need to 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 be be quieter or be on time. Uh, you know that that um, I think that that might have been legitimate. However, the scripture is pretty clear that that it's best to go to a person. Matthew the 18th chapter, the 19th verse and following, that when there's confrontation necessary, you go to a brother or sister. And I imagine that the people you go to daily mass with are people who you know and they know you. To go to them individually and say, you know, you know I noticed you're, you're usually late. Well, why is that? Now, some people are late because, well, they have children or a sick mother or something or, or something. You know, you have to you have to you have to be personal about any confrontation. I think that's an important uh, caveat in the scripture. It says if your brother offends you. I remember people used to come and say, Brother, the Lord told me to tell you this. I don't know your name, but brother. Well, why are you calling me brother if you don't know my name? You have to get to know the person's situation. And why are they late? <laughs> and, you know, uh, just, and it's kind of an individual thing. So, you know, to confront people in groups is, is, is um, sometimes necessary, but rarely. I don't know if that helps at all. So I wouldn't worry yes, too much about that, it, though. That does. Well, God bless. Well, there right. you go. All right. Thank you so much. Keep smiling. Bye-bye. God bless, Myra. Whom do we have now? Do we have somebody online? Christina from Albuquerque. I love Albuquerque. I love that part of the world, the high country there. It's gorgeous. <laughs> Christina, what can I do for you? Hello. It is beautiful here. Hello. Four I seasons. do. Um, it, it is, it is lovely, uh, that high country. Hmm. Yes. Yes, thank you. <laughs> uh, my uh, friend and I were discussing uh, Sodom and Gomorrah and the abominable yes. act that was done before the Lord. And I was sure on your radio station, you were uh, maybe it was Patrick Madrid was talking about that the men were asking for uh, the same sex. Um, yeah. And she said, no, that's not true and blew me off. And I, I don't know what to say after that. <laughs> Oh, I just it's, wanted to it's, clarify. It's, no, you were right. Let me let me pull up that, that verse in the scripture. Uh, it's a little nuanced. Uh, send them out that we may. Okay, okay, we're gonna find it. All right, uh, Genesis nineteen five. Okay, the story is. Um, Okay, this is this is. Uh, I'll be I'll be as deft as I can. Uh, the the there's some strangers who come to Sodom, 
And uh, so Lot is there, and Lot is a good man. Now, two angels, this is Genesis 19, verse 1. Now, two angels arrived at Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gateway of the city. When Lot saw them, he got up to meet them, bowed face down, and said, My lords, please turn aside to the house of your servant, wash your feet, and spend the night. Then you can rise early and go on your way. No, we'll spend the night in the square. But Lot insisted strongly that they follow him into his house. He prepared a feast for them and baked unleavened bread, and they ate. Now, let me let me advance the text here. Uh, um, before they had gone to bed, all the men of the city of Sodom, both young and old, surrounded the house. They called out to Lot, saying, Where are the men who came tonight? Send us out, send them out to us. And then let me look at the Hebrew text, what it actually says. Um, that, uh, let's see here. They compassed them about the... Now before they left the city, the men of Sodom compassed over the house from young and old, all the people from every quarter... And this is verse 19, 5. And they called and said, Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out that we might know them. And that is a a, uh, a, a, a biblical euphemism. It doesn't just mean that we can get acquainted with them. It's a biblical euphemism for uh, carnal relations. So, yeah. That, okay. That, yeah, yeah. Verse 19, 5. It's, it's, yeah, it's pretty clear. And, uh, um, okay. you know, there are all sorts of people say this was a violation of hospitality. And no, they wanted to treat them as as objects. Now, it's a very interesting thing that right. that uh, because of our history of, of Judeo-Christian morality, that we define intimacies very clearly. And in the ancient world, they didn't. It was just, you know, that that they were in a certain way much more progressive than we are um, about these things. And that's not necessarily a good thing in the Bible. Um, I, I think that um, uh, in this country and in our in our in our civilization, we still define people by sexual preference, even when we mm -hmm. are progressive. And that that. That that didn't fly in in the scriptures, you know that that uh, that um, there was only one permitted relationship, uh, a, a relationship between a man and a woman that was open to life. That's pretty biblical. So no, you're right. Uh, Genesis nineteen five. There you go. I was, you can say. Uh, I was wondering. Thank you, Father Simon. I um I was wondering how she's Protestant. How mm -hmm. would I go to her and say, you know, it actually. I know you tried to correct me on that, but it really does say this. How I don't know how I would go about having another discussion with her. Um, you know, I don't know that I would. If she brings it up and say, "Well, the scripture clearly says that," and are you are you are you really Protestant? I would say, to her, she says, "Yes, I'm Protestant." Says, "So you believe in sola scriptura, scripture alone?" Yeah. Well, you know that. If you believe in sola scriptura, the Bible's pretty clear here, and uh, um, you know we're, we're it's it's easier to be Catholic because we have a consistent two thousand year teaching about this. So you know, say I love you and I respect you, but you know the scripture is pretty clear on it. If you claim to be Protestant, well, Bible alone, you're not you're not being Protestant. That's how I would take it. Well, speaking of Catholic, though, Drew is coming up, and you know he's he's. I think he's Italian ethnically, and well, they've been Catholic since long before Christ. <laughs> 